Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Promise Perspective podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Green, and I'm also the founder and owner of the Promise Perspective. I am picking up where we left off because these episodes, I feel um, as I've been preparing for them, they seem to just feel like they're going to be getting longer and longer. So um, if you're just tuning in, I'm, I welcome you here. I'm glad you're here. And I also encourage you all for whoever's listening that if you haven't already done so, please make sure to start from the beginning of this season because these episodes are directly built off of one another. So each episode is like a continuation of the last one. So instead of doing these intros every single week or every other week, whenever I release a podcast episode, we're just picking up where we left off. So in last week's episode, we left off at the end of Genesis. Joseph and his family, the Israelites, went to Egypt to escape the severe famine in the land. As we segue into the biblical history of the Hebrew people, and as we begin in the next book, the book of Exodus, we know that while coming into Egypt saved the people, it also marked the beginning of their 430-year slavery in Egypt. So before we dive in, I want to share with you how this episode and the next two will be broken down. Um, In this episode, we're going to cover some biblical history about the house of Israel, which is all 12 tribes, about how the people were led out of Egypt and into their promised land, how they split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and what led to their captivities. The, The kingdom of Israel would fall to the Assyrians in 722 BCE. That's before Common Era. And the southern kingdom of Judah would fall to the Babylonians in 586 BCE. In the next episode, it's important that we we learn and study what the prophets had to say about all of this. Yahuwah sent many prophets to prophesy to the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah before, during, and after their captivities. So in order to put their prophetic words into context, we need to gain a historical understanding of the political climate, the spiritual climate, and even a geographical perspective. And the thing, too, is that the prophets weren't only sent to warn of destruction They were sent to bring messages of hope to the people. Yahuwah eventually allowed for the exile of his people because of their refusal to return to him. But what is so beautiful is that he's not done with his people yet. There is a promise of restoration that is so great and so monumental that most Christians miss it completely today because we've been taught prophecy through a lens of dispensationalism. And I'm going to get into that topic later on in this season, but it it breaks my heart because so many people today disregard the Old Testament without realizing that there are still prophecies that are applicable to us today. 
and I want to talk about it. So the next episode is going to go into more detail about the promises of the prophets. And then the episode following that is going to focus on the aftermath of the Babylonian captivity. And I cannot stress the importance of studying the impact of the Babylonian captivity and what that had on the kingdom of Judah. And the impact is still relevant to us believers today. I actually talk about this in my What is God's Name ebook as well. That's on my website. So that that's the breakdown of the next three episodes. So without further ado, let's begin. <laughs> so we pick up in Exodus after the death of Joseph. And at the same time, a new Pharaoh arose who scripture says did not know Joseph. That's Exodus chapter one, verse eight, because the Israelites were becoming very fruitful in number. The Hebrews were multiplying faster than the Egyptians. The Pharaoh began to heavily oppress them because he was worried that they might outnumber and overrule the Egyptians. So he commanded that all of the Hebrew baby boys be thrown into the Nile River. And this is where Moses enters the picture in which him and his older brother Aaron were born of the tribe of Levi. So Moses' mother safely placed him in a box. And if you read the story, you know that it was Pharaoh's daughter who found and adopted Moses. And Moses would be the one Yahuwah would, would call to be the vessel that he would use to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, it says, And I come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land flowing with milk and honey. And then when Moses asked Yahuwah, who should I tell them sent me? We read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, And Elohim said moreover unto Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahuwah your Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So here we go. It's about to go down. <laughs> Moses became the messenger to the people that Yahuwah heard their cries and it was time to deliver them from their oppressor. And I just want to throw this out there too. Um, even Moses wrestled with his calling. If you've read Exodus, then you know Moses had a speech impediment. He actually begged Yahuwah to send someone else. So Yahuwah made his brother Aaron the physical mouthpiece to the Pharaoh. But Yah only spoke to Moses. Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. And Yahuwah said to Moses, See, I have made you an Elohim, a mighty one, that's what that means, to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. So I'm not going to go into detail about all the plagues. We know that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and it wouldn't be until the last plague 
the death of the firstborns, that he would let the Hebrew people go. So this is the event that we know today as the Passover. For the Hebrew Israelites who Moses spoke to, they were told to cover their doorposts in the blood of an unblemished male lamb. And this was the mark that was used so that when the angels were sent to smite the firstborns in Egypt, they would pass over the houses that were covered with the blood of the lamb. And Yahuwah was telling the people through Moses, like, listen up. They were instructed on that night to get their bellies full from the lamb, as well as get their unleavened bread, have their shoes on their feet and their staff in their hands. Because once this went down, Pharaoh would eventually be like, you know, go on and get out of here. (laughs) The Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread are done today in memorial of the exodus out of Egypt. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 39, that their bread wasn't leavened because it didn't have the time needed to rise. And it says they had to take unleavened bread with them because they were going to be, quote unquote, thrust out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 12 is like jam packed with so much action. (laughs) So um, also... This needs to be this needs to be made known too, um, because it it's going to be a huge point of discussion later, since the topic of this entire season is who is Israel. I want to read to you what happens in Exodus chapter twelve, verse thirty-eight. So it says, and I quote, "And a mixed multitude." went up also with them. Moses brought a lot of people out of Egypt, but not all of them were Hebrew Israelites by the bloodline of shame. There were Egyptians and maybe even others that went with them because the Almighty One of Israel demonstrated that he was way more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. And they were like, uh, yeah, I want to follow that God. That's who I want to follow. So we must understand, this is so important, that Yahuwah chose Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be his chosen people. That is the bloodline that is blessed And there is no other group of people that he chose to be his set-apart people. Not the Babylonians, not the Greeks, the Romans. What made his people set apart was that they had laws and commandments that they followed. Or that they were told to follow, because they didn't always follow them. No other so-called God had this set of standards that were to set them apart from the rest of the world. Every other God you read about, whether it's in scripture or historically, these gods were, you could worship them any way you wanted to, pretty much. So I'm not going to continue going through the book of Exodus because it's a long book, but, uh, you know, after the people finally made it to safety, we begin to see Yahuwah teach the people like, okay, I know y'all saw the miracles of deliverance you just received, but here's the thing. 
You are my people. I chose you. I delivered you. Now I need to teach you my ways so that I can protect you and bless you. It was one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's a whole other thing to get Egypt out of the people. Think about it. These people had been slaves for over 400 years. That's generations of people. They were indoctrinated with Egyptian religion, Egyptian traditions and beliefs. Their whole identity was in Egypt. So as you read the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these books summarize their wilderness years. For 40 years after that, Yahweh was leading them, teaching them, disciplining them, and forging their new identity rooted in him and his commandments. He did this so that when when the appointed time came for them to possess the land of Canaan, they would know how to establish themselves in the land as a people of Yahuwah, and they would understand how to properly worship him. Not only that, but they would know how to function. They would know how to govern themselves and also how to love one another. The whole point of their obedience to his ways was so that he, so that they would remain in covenant with him. That's why toward the end of their wilderness journey, Yah reiterates his commandments again to the people in Deuteronomy um, chapter 28. And that chapter outlines the blessings that come through obedience and the curses that come through disobedience. So, however, going back to the mixed multitude, we can see throughout scripture, and I'll give you a couple of verses here in a minute, that if there was a stranger or a foreigner that wanted to follow and serve Yahuwah, they could be grafted in. Only if they remained in covenant with him. And throughout history, people have always been allowed to be grafted into Israel. But Israel has commandments and laws that are followed as part of that agreement, as part of that covenant. But the Israelites were told, and you can find it in Exodus chapter 23, verses 32 through 33, says, it says, you must not make a covenant with them or their gods. They must not remain in your land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. So what is what is sin? First John chapter three, verse four, sin is transgression of the law. The Hebrew word for law in scripture is Torah. And Torah simply means instructions. So sin is transgression of the Torah, Yahuwah's commandments. Scripture also talks about the quote-unquote mixed multitude in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. And in, in Numbers chapter 15, verses 15 through 16, Yahuwah says, One ordinance shall be both for you of the congregation and also for the stranger that sojourns with you. 
an ordinance forever in your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before Yahuwah. One law in one manner shall be for you and for the stranger that sojourns with you. And in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, talking about the Day of Atonement, it says, And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be of, or whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. And another really good example is Ruth the Moabite. If you read the book of Ruth, you will learn that Ruth was a Gentile, a Moabite. Remember, Moab was Lot's son, not Abraham's. Who And Ruth was a Moabite who became a part of the lineage of Yahusha, our Messiah. Ruth married Boaz, a Hebrew husband, in the line of King David. And they gave birth to a son named Obed, who would become the grandfather of David. Now, why would Yahuwah bless the bloodline of a Hebrew who married a Gentile woman when he specifically told the people not to marry the women of other nations? So think about this. Yahusha came to us through a bloodline of Israel, but also through a Gentile who was grafted in to the lineage that brought us our Messiah. But the thing is, Ruth wanted to serve the God that Naomi, her mother-in-law, served. Although the family was going through a devastating tragedy with the loss of Naomi's husband and her two sons, um, Ruth was a woman of beautiful loyalty and faith. So again, why would Yahuwah bless the bloodline of a Hebrew who married a Gentile woman? This is one of the things I personally like to call mysteries of the gospel. Um, Yah's plan of redemption is so much bigger than we can even fathom. He's so much more sovereign than we can even fathom. And this story right here paints the picture of Yahuwah's plan of redemption for for all people of all nations. So Ruth chapter 1 verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. These are powerful words spoken by a Gentile woman who wanted to serve the God of Israel. Ruth wanted to stay with Naomi to follow Yahuwah. She didn't want to go back to her Moabite family. She wholeheartedly trusted in the promises that obedience to Yahuwah would bring blessings. And that it did. She was grafted in. She married a Hebrew man, Boaz, and she would become blessed through Abraham's seed. I want you to understand this mystery here. The plan of redemption is all based on covenant. The covenant was physically made to the bloodline of the house, the tribes of Israel, the whole house of Israel. 
the spiritual covenant pertains to those who are Gentiles, strangers, who seek to be grafted in to Israel spiritually. The greater plan of salvation was already revealed to us in the Old Testament. But it was confirmed to us once our Messiah completely tore the veil and renewed the covenant with us. Because, you know, Israel was divorced from Yahuwah and he had to make a way to restore them and bring them back into covenant. And we'll get we're going to get into that later. But the main takeaway that I want you to see here is that Yahuwah made a covenant with physical Israel. In the New Testament, you see Paul refer to them as the natural branches. But he also made it clear that if the stranger wanted to join them, they were upheld to the same covenant terms and conditions. In the New Testament, Paul refers to them as the wild branches. I just want you to see that the covenant is about keeping his commandments, whether you were a Hebrew Israelite or a Gentile. His ultimate plan of salvation is to redeem those in covenant with him because that is who Israel is. So do you see why these genealogies are so important for us to study? Like, does it make sense why these genealogies are included in scripture for us to have and learn from? Every single word in scripture is profitable for teaching. Because so many people say that Many, many of these old laws are for the Jews, but the thing is, is that it wasn't for the Jews then. <laughs> His commandments were for anyone who wanted to follow Yahuwah. Nowhere can you find in scripture, Yahuwah says, this is for the Jews. And we're going to unpack this later in this season, but it's important that you know this. Um, uh, Jew comes from the word Yahudi. And to be a Yahudi means that you're a descendant from the tribe of Judah. Yahuda. <laughs> Yahudi, Yahuda. Judah is just one tribe. So when people talk about the Old Testament being Jewish or for the Jews, most don't understand that technically what they're saying is that it's just for the tribe of Judah. See, it's a misunderstanding because we've lacked the appropriate context in applying scripture. Many people who are even converted to the religion of Judaism refer to themselves as a Jew or Jewish. But does that make them a part of the Hebrew bloodline? Does that mean that that they come from the tribe of Judah? No. So... It's important that we, you know, make that clarification because like I've said before, words have meaning, but the issue that we have today with scripture and about the meaning of quote unquote Jews in general is that many words have been applied and interpreted to mean something that they actually aren't biblically. And I hope to make that abundantly clear as we continue in this season. Okay, so 
the children of Israel are the 12 tribes. But Yahuwah makes it clear in several places that if anyone wants to sojourn with them, they are upheld to the same standard as the Israelites. So some key takeaways from Exodus are the Hebrews literal enslavement in Egypt exemplifies and illustrates our own enslavement to sin. Their exodus represents our own departure from sin. Our Passover lamb, Yahusha, represents the sacrifice needed in order to be delivered from the curse of sin and death. Their wilderness years echo our own wilderness years as we forge our new identity in Yahusha under the new covenant. And, and Yahuwah wanted Moses to build the tabernacle. Exodus is where they're given directions to construct the tabernacle so he could dwell among his people. But now the renewed covenant that we've been given allows for his Ruach HaKodesh, his set-apart spirit, to dwell in us. We are his temple. We are his tabernacle. So then we have the book of Leviticus, which teaches us about communion with the Most High by atonement, through atonement. This is where we learn about the Levitical priesthood. And it's important to learn about the Levitical priesthood and the role of the high priest in order to understand the Melchizedek order of our new high priest of the new covenant, Yahusha. And I also want to be clear too, when I say new covenant, this is something that I will get into later, but the new covenant isn't fully fulfilled yet, but it is beginning to be fulfilled as he writes his commands on our hearts like he said he was going to through the prophets. Okay, so when I say new covenant, I'm not talking about a complete fulfillment. The new covenant will be fulfilled in the millennial reign when our Messiah returns. So I just want to make that clear because I know that can cause a little bit of confusion for some people. So um, the new covenant is being is one that is where his word, his commands, his Torah is being written on our hearts. And once he comes back. Everything will be written on our hearts for those in covenant with him. That's why we got to understand this, this word covenant in relationship to something being old and new because the old covenant's not old because the new covenant isn't necessarily new, but it's a renewed, it's a refreshed covenant. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, so book of Leviticus, it's also where we learn again about the appointed feast days. Another thing that we're told is for the Jews, but I think it's worth noting that Yahweh tells us in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1 and 23, verse 44, that these are Yahuwah's feasts. And now's not the time to get into detail, but, you know, another beautiful mystery of the gospel is how each one of these feasts point to our Messiah. They're talked about in scripture as being a shadow of things to come, a shadow of things to come, meaning 
They are called appointed times because of the prophecy and anticipation of them being fulfilled. Messiah has already fulfilled the spring feasts and the fall feasts will be fulfilled at his second coming. Understanding the purpose that these appointed times actually play in the role of the redemption of mankind will change your mind so quick about them being, quote unquote, for the Jews. Man, if you love the father and you're waiting on his son to return, then these feasts are most definitely for you. (laughs) I worry that the church does not have an understanding of what these appointed times mean for us today. Because if they did, they would be so excited and eager to teach their congregation that part of being prepared for his return involves celebrating these special biblical holidays. So in the book of Numbers, it picks up where Moses left off in Exodus. This is <laughs> this is the commencement of their travels through the wilderness to the promised land. Numbers is basically a chronicle of their 40 years in the wilderness, the desert. They received their 40-year punishment for disobedience in Numbers chapter 14. Moral of the story is it didn't take them long for them to start their mumbling and grumbling (laughs) and their disobedience. Like I said, it was one thing to get the people out of Egypt, but it was another thing to get Egypt out of the people. And so we get to Numbers 15. And I feel like I need to stop here because as I was preparing for this episode and as I was reading through this chapter, verse 15 and 16, verse 15 and 16 really drew my attention. So I'm going to read them. Numbers chapter 15. Verses 15 through 16, it says, One ordinance shall be both for you of the congregation and also for the stranger that sojourns with you, an ordinance forever in your generation. As you are, so shall the stranger be before Yahuwah. One law in one manner shall be for you and for the stranger that sojourns with you. Okay, so these verses are probably one of the most objective, clear verses in Scripture that ties heavily into what it means to understanding our identity. And the key words here are one law and forever. Yahuwah did not establish one law for the children of Israel and another law for other nations, Gentiles. Instead, he established one law that would be for all of mankind. That's why Yahuwah actually encourages the Israelites to accept strangers and sojourners, but also that they may learn and obey the same law as them. And the same goes for us Gentiles today. We get to become a part of Israel's identity. But we are to learn and obey the same law. We aren't given a different law. 
ever, nowhere in scripture. Because one of the things that I want to point out too is that there's only one lawgiver, so there can only be one law. Because a lot of people like to break down the law, which is the Torah. It just means instructions. I think law is not a good word to use because law was not used in Hebrew. It was Torah. It was instructions. But people like to say, well, that's the law of Moses, and that's the law of Christ. And I don't know what else they use. But the thing is, is that those laws, like... To put it as simply as I can, you know, if there's only one lawgiver, then there can only be one law. I mean, it's it's so simple that it's it can be confusing. But people like to break up, you know, what we're what we should and should not obey based on it being the law of Moses. Moses didn't write that law. Moses didn't write the commandments. Actually, Yahweh's finger wrote the t- the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. But even deep, even more than that, Mo- Moses got his law from Yahuwah. Yahusha said, I didn't come to speak the words on my own. I came to speak. I came to do my father's will. He only spoke what the father told him to speak. So if you think that that meant that he came to give us a different law, like you're, you're mistaken. So I think it's important to point that out because people really like to use words to manipulate truth. And that's certainly what they do with them saying, you know, it's the law of Christ, the law of Moses. It's Yahuwah's law. He just revealed it to his people through different people at different times and points of history. So he said in Numbers chapter 15, one law, one Torah, one set of instructions will be for you and for the stranger. And it says, this will be for you and the stranger forever in your generations. And he said <clears throat> in Malachi, was it chapter three? I do not change. He does not change. Like I said, Yahweh did not establish one law for Israel and one law for Gentiles. He said, if they want to sojourn with you, make sure you tell them, hey, we got one ordinance. This is for this is for all of us and people who wanted to you know, follow him, they had to agree to that or else they weren't in covenant. It's all about covenant. So, you know, like I said, we, we as Gentiles, myself as a Gentile, I get to become part of Israel. Now I get to be, I get to be Israel now. I am part of Israel, but that's because I, I'm obeying the same instructions that they were given. So now I'm, you know, I'm yoked. I'm in covenant now. We don't have this different law we're supposed to follow. They're like, I, it's not in scripture. So I just wanted to point out, you know, a lot of theology in modern Christianity likes to teach their own doctrines to illustrate the difference between all those things, law of Moses, law of Christ, law of God. But... You know, there's only one set of instructions that we have and obedience to those instructions and like his commandments helps us to understand how we are to love the father and how we are to love one another. And that's why Yahusha told the people, 
all of the law hangs on those two, two commandments, loving Yah and loving one another. I mean, and there are also many people who claim that, you know, the law of Moses and the law of Christ are different from one another. You know, there are a lot of like, especially and this has been created out of Judaism, but there's different subcategories that were created that give distinctions between the different laws too. And that's just too much to get into right now. But what I wanted to point out was that anyway, there's just one law and there's one lawgiver. If our Messiah, who we must remember was the word made flesh that dwelt among us and only spoke what the father told him to speak, If we believe that our Messiah came and preached a different word, a different set of instructions, other than the word of Yahuwah, he would be an anti-Messiah, an anti-Christ. And that's exactly how he's preached today. This is exactly how this Jesus is preached to the masses today as one who has done away with it all. And that's completely wrong. And, you know, when you look up the definition of covenant, um, you know, people people will say that we have a new covenant in that same breath. They'll say that the law was done away with. But the thing is, is that (laughs) think about it like a marriage. When I when I um, married my husband, I made a covenant with him. I said, I will do these things because I love you. And I'm not going to break covenant with you. I'm not going to cheat on you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not, I'm not going to leave your side. I made a covenant and a covenant is not a law. It's an agreement to keep the terms and conditions set forth by two parties, right? So, you know, if, even if somebody were to commit adultery, and divorce their husband. That doesn't change what a covenant means for a marriage, does it? You know, that's kind of how we have to look at what covenant is because we are preparing for a wedding one day. We are preparing for a wedding. And it's it, it kind of helps when you're able to put things in terms of a covenant because that's what it is. You know, when he bring when he brought us a new covenant, that did not mean that he brought us a new law. A new, co- a new covenant is an agreement to keep the law. And what is the new covenant? I'm just going to, I'm just going to read it. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares Yahuwah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their Elohim and they will be my people. And this is repeated by the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 10. So, if those verses tell us that there is one law forever, and we know that our Father does not change, then nothing has changed. Whether you are natural, bloodline Israel, or a stranger that wants to follow the same God that Israel follows, there's one law for all, forever. He makes it really simple. And the word has final authority and final say. So let's move on. 
we come to the book of Deuteronomy. Yahuwah has been guiding the people, teaching, rebuking, training the people in their new identity rooted in Yahuwah's ways and commands. They've reached the end of their wilderness years, and it's time for them to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Deuteronomy confirms again the covenant with the people. Moses brings the people to remember everything that they've been taught over these 40 years. Moses knows that he has to stay behind. And this is when he passes the torch over to Joshua as the new leader of the Israelites, who would be the one to lead the people into their homeland, their inheritance. And there is so much that can be said about Deuteronomy. But I personally think that Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a chapter that you should read and consider because it outlines the blessings and curses that come to Israel. Blessings for obedience, for keeping his commandments and walking in his ways and curses for disobedience, for breaking the commandments. So the book of Joshua teaches us how Joshua led the people into their promised land They cleansed their land of pagan worship and established a commonwealth that would be a blessing to the world, ruled by Yahuwah's righteous Torah, his commandments. Long story short, after Joshua passes away, Israel quickly fell into sin and apostasy. They had no leader, except periods of time where Yah appointed judges to rescue Israel and administer justice in the land. They had no leader up until we get to Samuel. And the majority of the Old Testament books are the history books of Israel and the prophets that Yahuwah sent to warn the people of judgment and convict the people of their sin and idolatry. There's a lot of history that I have to skip over because I'm not led to go into those details at this time. So let's fast forward to King Saul. So he was from the tribe of Benjamin and ruled the nation of Israel for 40 years. Then King David from the tribe of Judah ruled 40 years. And then King Solomon, who was David's son, would also rule for 40 years. So when King Solomon passed away, which was around 920 to 930 BCE, his son Rehoboam, I think that's how you say it, was set to become the next king. Jeroboam, who was a servant of Solomon from the tribe of Ephraim, led a group of people to confront Rehoboam with a demand for a lighter tax burden than what Rehoboam was trying to enforce. So when Rehoboam refused, 10 of the 12 tribes rejected him as the king, as well as David's dynasty. So in about 975 BCE, during the reign of Rehoboam, and as prophesied by Ahiah in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 31 through 35, the house of Israel became divided into two kingdoms. Now, only the tribe of Judah and Benjamin would remain loyal to King 
Rehoboam. And the other 10 tribes would crown Jeroboam as their king. And this split was huge, (laughs) huge, and is a monumental piece of history that we must understand if we're to even begin to understand what the prophets would later prophesy that would indicate Yahuwah's plan for the restoration of the whole house of Israel, the whole house of Jacob, all 12 tribes. So you must understand history in order to have a more complete understanding of prophecy. So we now have the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Israel is also referred to as Ephraim in some places in scripture, because like I said, Jeroboam came from the tribe of Ephraim, but Israel's capital would be Samaria. And then we have the Southern Kingdom of Judah with their capital being Jerusalem. And the conflict between these two kingdoms is still in effect today, even though most don't know it or see it. Most are fed and believe a false narrative of who Israel truly is because they don't know history. And that's exactly why this history has to be talked about. So almost as soon as the Northern Kingdom of Israel was established, it went into apostasy. And why was this? Because not one single king led the people back to Yah. The people adopted so many forms of pagan worship, including practices of Baal, which I discussed in episodes 34 through 38 on season three. And I have two charts that I'm including in the podcast episode description that gives you a breakdown of all the kings, the years of their reign, whether they were good or bad, as well as the prophets sent during certain times before Israel fell and before Judah fell. I believe that this is a chart that I got from Brother Ron at Truth Unedited. So I take no credit for this. I just want to pass this along and make it available to you. And this is this is an incredible source to, to allow you to just have one place where you can put so much of the history of scripture into context. Because listen, when I started reading the Bible, I thought the whole Old Testament was written and placed in chronological order. <laughs> I didn't know. No one ever taught me how to read the Bible or how to put things in context. I grew up in the Catholic Church and we never studied the front of the book. Never. And maybe someone listening to this was never taught this either. So, so after about 200 years of rebellion, Samaria is destroyed. The northern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 BCE. The next empire, the next great empire after the ancient Babylonian empire was the Assyrian empire. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 22, we read that one of the children of Shem was Ashur. This is who the Assyrians came from. Although, however, remember that it's only through the Abrahamic bloodline that would be the chosen people to carry Yahuwah's promises and ways 
to the nations. So a little bit about the Assyrians. They were some scary people. They were known for their military might and cruelty. They were highly skilled in in war and their use of weapons. And they were incredibly skilled at siege warfare. They were the first to use battering rams And they were always coming up with new ways to attack cities. So, for example, some of you may know that a city's strongest defense was their walls. In ancient times, cities would build these impenetrable fortified walls to keep invaders out. Well, the Assyrians would, (laughs) they would build movable towers that they, they were rolled up to these city walls and soldiers would use those towers to climb over these walls. They were ruthless. It was a Syrian policy to deport conquered peoples to other lands within their empire. They would loot the nations that they conquered and that's how they'd build their estate. They would skin their prisoners alive. They'd cut off their body parts, pull out their tongues, display human skulls as trophies. Like, nowhere in the pages of history will you find a people as vicious as the Assyrians. Creating fear among their enemies was part of their military strategy. And we can read in the Bible that Babylon was constantly challenging them for the position of being the leading power in the ancient world. Babylon would eventually defeat and conquer Assyria in 607 BCE. But we can also read in verses like Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 28, and Hosea chapter 8, verse 9, that pagan worship of the Assyrians was seriously condemned by the prophets. So when the Assyrians besieged Samaria and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, the Assyrians carried away thousands of Israelites and resettled them in other parts of the Assyrian empire. So first Kings, or I'm sorry, second Kings chapter 17, verse 24 says the King of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Avah, Hamath, and Sepharvaim and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. It says they took over Samaria and lived in their cities. So the 10 tribes never fully recovered and to this day haven't been fully restored yet. Another reason I'm doing this season on who is Israel is because many will say that the 10 tribes were lost to history, but I believe that to be a myth. We don't exactly know where all of them went, but there's a lot more research that I've been doing on this that suggests otherwise. But anyway, 2 Kings gives us a historical account of the fall of Israel. 2 Kings 17. Um, It's also worth mentioning, and this will be broken down and discussed at a later time, But we know, according to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, that it was Yahuwah who divorced Israel. 
it says he issued Israel a certificate of divorce because they continued to break his commandments. And the commandments are the covenant vows that we make with Yahuwah. And this plays a huge role in what the Messiah came to do because Yahuwah cannot break his word. He can't go against his word. So by divorcing Israel meant that he could not bring them back to him unless, as prophesied, he renewed the covenant. So I don't want to get ahead of myself, but let's turn our attention toward Judah. Because at this point in time, the kingdom of Judah was the only only man left standing. <laughs> there were two tribes left. But as Jeremiah tells us in the same verse, chapter 3, verse 8, it says that Israel's treacherous sister Judah went and played the harlot also. And that Judah would become even more rebellious than Israel. So... After many years of rebellion, the southern kingdom of Judah met that same fate and were conquered by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, in 586 BC as they became the new world empire at that time. So the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple, besieged Jerusalem, and the people of Judah went into their prophesied captivity. They had been warned. <laughs> So, we can read the books of First and Second Kings to get a historical account of the nations and kingdoms. And we can read the books of the prophets to get an account of the spiritual condition of the people. The problem was that the people had apostatized and they had few kings or leaders that were capable of of leading them back to the only thing that was going to heal their nations, which was obedience to the Father's commandments. The people chose to follow after the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they were punished for it. So, we end this episode here at what seems to be the end of Israel and Judah. But as we will discuss in the next episode... Yahuwah not only used his prophets to warn and rebuke and plea, but to also offer promises of hope because the Most High was and is far finished, far from finished with his people, which shows us today just how merciful and long-suffering he is. And I promise you the reason... It is important for us to read and study this is because these same warnings apply to us in our worship today. And we still have the same prophecies and promises to look forward to. So we will pick up right where we left off next time. So I hope that this has helped for those. Like I've said before, you guys, I... um. I just really want to meet people where they're at with with this season, no matter where they're at in their walk. And I just felt led to spend a good amount of time talking a little bit about like the history of scripture. And I know this was a very, for the most, I mean, this was a very like, you know, brief summary of 
going through the different books and the the like the kingdoms, the empires. But what I hope to do maybe in the future is to talk in more detail about, you know, specific books, because as I found through my own studies, every single word in scripture means something. It really does. The Hebrew language is absolutely the most beautiful language I've ever studied. It Well, <laughs> it's the only language I've really ever tried to study. Not that I'm trying to learn how to speak Hebrew or be fluent at all. I'm just wanting to know enough to help me better understand the word, right? So, so I hope that I know this wasn't like a huge breakdown of history, but um, my my prayer for that was just to talk about enough to establish a baseline and a foundation because over the next few episodes, we're going to get very, very scripture heavy as we start learning the um, the impact and the influence that the Babylonian captivity had on the Yahudim, who what people call the Jews today. So, but it's it's more than just it's more than just something being about what happened to the Jews. There was a much broader and there's just there's just so much that is in scripture that we really have to mine out and dig out in order to understand that, you know, the people that were in the Babylonian captivity, it was more than just the tribe of Judah. Um, And scripture will actually shows us that. So we're going to talk a a lot more about that in the coming episodes. So anyway, if you all need anything, my contact information is in the episode description. You can get a hold of me on social media or some of you have my phone number. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, I hope that this episode blessed you and edified you. And I can't wait to be back with you all next week. So shalom.